You can just shut everything down come Sabbath time. So it's a true blessing from God. You might recall last week I mentioned again the prophecy in Isaiah 7 how, uh, speaking of Ephraim, it talks how it would be destroyed within 65 years from some date that God would assign and that it would be forsaken of both their kings. Well, the book of Hosea is written primarily to Ephraim as the leader of the rest of Israel and Judah and so on, even as Jeremiah said that God has chosen Ephraim at this time to be his firstborn. So uh, Ephraim is addressed in Hosea quite strongly, but I just happened to run across this morning in Hosea 10 another reference similar to what I mentioned last week. <coughs> it says here in chapter 10, verse 15 of Hosea, uh, so shall Bethdel uh, do to you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall your king shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. So another reference here to Ephraim losing her king or her leader. Uh, I think we would translate that president today. They didn't have that office then, but it was king, but leader of the land in any case. Uh, so. It has been said about President Trump that he seems to be making an alliance or trying to make an alliance with Russia uh, to protect national sovereignty because it's been said by quite a few that Putin seems to be more of a Christian and that he uh, uh, would stand against the New World Order. So it says here in Hosea 12, that Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. And another place that's east of here, uh, that he goes to the Assyrian like a silly dove. So is that what, ha is, that what is happening right now? That our own leadership is looking to the Assyrian for help, for strength, uh, for guidance in these days in some kind of a, an alliance and yet we seem to be making preparations for war against Russia and they against us at the same time, along with the Chinese and others. So uh, this just caught my eye this morning, and I thought I would mention it. Just another reference to the fact that uh, we probably will lose our president to assassination or in some form he will die in office, I would think, based on these. Of course, you always tie in Jeremiah 50 and 51, 51 in particular, where it says there will be rumors in the land in the next year, uh, violence, ruler against ruler. And here it also talks about civil war. Where did I see that? Where it talks there will be a tumult among the people, and then our leader would be lost. So the things that we are seeing happening in the beginnings of civil war are upon us. Uh, the stock market fell almost 500 points yesterday. I don't know whether it's a signal of any kind or not, but uh, we might be heading into this financial collapse. It's certainly worth watching to see if now is the time for that. We've had drops in the market before. I understand that, and this might not be it, but he tells us to watch, to be aware, and uh, it's dropped uh, I think over 10% since when, I, I don't remember now that they said October or whatever, 
which is correction territory, and that it might go on down from there. So we could be on the edge of these things beginning to happen very, very easily. Uh, so I thought, as a watchman, I should mention that, and we can keep our eye on things and, and be aware because we need to look to God to deliver us regardless when these things do start coming down. It is interesting, another comment that was made is that uh, when the House of Representatives takes over the uh, the Democratic Party takes it over in January as the uh, majority, that they're not going to support any wall building or support any closing of our borders, and they may just simply allow millions and millions of people to come across that border. Uh, because Trump can't stop it. They won't fund the wall, and they won't stop anything, and they will go against it. So this invasion could start any time, and the financial collapse could start any time. So the seeds of war are being planted around the world, and we just need to be aware of the times we're living in. So from there, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. While we're talking about uh, church administration, and Christianity here in the New Testament, we still need to be aware of the prophecies and what's going on because Christ told us very clearly in Matthew that we are to be aware and keep watch and know what's happening around us. So again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a situation where people were being puffed up in their own minds as to their own importance and then they were also trying to decide among themselves and with different opinions who were the most important ministers and who they should uh, follow. And Paul is pointing out pretty clearly by chapter 3 that there's no other foundation that can be laid than Christ himself. It wasn't the ministers who started the church. It was Christ who started it, and he is the one who appointed the ministry over it. He is the one who appointed Herbert Armstrong. Whether some people like that or not, he did. Uh, and that's not a question. So, whatever Herbert Armstrong did is between him and God. And what work he did, uh, I think, is obvious to us all. And then most of that work was torn down. Uh, because God was unhappy with us and with the administration to some degree. And in a sense, he, he talks about here whether you build on gold, silver, and precious stones or on wood, hay, and stubble. And every man's work shall be made, man, made manifest, for the day will declare it and reveal by fire. And I think that Worldwide Church of God came under a great deal of fire and pressure from quite a few different directions and for quite a few different reasons. And that work was destroyed. Uh, God said it would die. And it has died. It's no longer existent. But uh, the Laodiceanism that we all share in is something that has to be repented of and changed so that Philadelphia can come out of that, be protected from the tribulation, as it says there, and go forward to finish the work in a way that Herbert Armstrong could not do. Uh, he did fulfill a purpose. He called a lot of people to the truth and led us in the right direction. But I think he will be saved in the world tomorrow. But the work that he did basically has been destroyed. 
So this is a good living example of what Paul is saying here. We've got to be sure that we're building on, uh, with the proper materials, our lives and the temple of God in us. And he says down here then, in verse 16, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that we're not to defile that temple. If we do, uh, God will destroy it. And I would say that we did defile the temple by our Laodiceanism, by our sins, by our difficulties, and we still do. Because we have not reached perfection and we still make mistakes. We still do things that are wrong. We still think things that are wrong. And we have to continue to work on ourselves to be a proper in place for the indwelling of God's Spirit. So it's a constant battle of overcoming and growing so that we can be part of the temple and part of the uh, bride of Christ. And we left it off there uh, last week in 1 Corinthians 3.17 uh, with a reminder that we are the temple of God and it must not be defiled. We must become holy and put out the dross and the, the wrong that is still in us. He says, Let no man deceive himself, then, in verse 18. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Uh, that harkens back to what he said in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, 7, 8, and so on, about God calling the weak and base of the world, because these people were uh, thinking pretty highly of themselves. And we have to be very, very careful in our assessment of ourselves, because we are all imperfect, we all make mistakes, we all need to grow and overcome yet. And a great deal of it is needed because we are far from perfect, for that matter. So let's not think that we are anything. Let's not deceive ourselves. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He takes the wise in their own craftiness. And the whole system of the world is about to come down. God is pretty well fed up with it. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And again, the eternal knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. He's talking about the smart, the educated, not the truly wise, but wise in their own conceits, as these people were. Uh, we have to be very, very careful not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think because we can become enamored with our own spirituality or our own righteousness or whatever. And God says, it has to go away. Uh, anyone who has the attitude of, I'm holier than thou, it says there in Isaiah 65, 64, 65, is in trouble. Uh, and he says that our self-righteousness will have to be turned into his righteousness in the last verse of Isaiah 54. So, the self-righteousness of the Corinthians, the self-righteousness of us Laodiceans, it's all about the same. Uh, and it has to be changed to the righteousness of God. <clears throat> and by nature, we try to put others down that we might feel better about ourselves. And none of us are worth anything apart from the Spirit of God. 
Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things uh, are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. God has opened up to us the opportunity to rule the entire universe forevermore. So why do we pick at each other our faults, our problems, our weaknesses, whatever there might be? Why do we pick at each other? When God has promised us eternity, if we will love one another and serve one another and help one another. And these people were picking at each other and trying to figure out who was the most important among them and who were the most important among the ministers. He says, it's all yours. You're Christ, and Christ is God's. Even Christ has an owner. <laughs> he has someone over him. So Christ is ours, and Christ is the Father's. So why do we war and fight among ourselves as to who is the most righteous? Why don't we just recognize that Christ is righteous, and the rest of us are below that, and then work on being what we ought to be instead of, as these people were, putting each other down and putting some of the ministry down. So in chapter 4, he continues it. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, don't try to raise one above another or play favorites. God has put the ministry there, and he says very clearly, Paul does, in Corinthians, that God has put them there as he pleases, and that he has appointed the office, and God has set them there. So just as he sets over the nations the basis of men, he also determines who will be in the ministry and who will not. And he very clearly appointed those apostles and then validated it when the apostles appointed another apostle. The Christ did not specifically choose while he was on the earth, but chose through the apostles after he left. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So, he says, God puts them there, and they're the stewards of the mysteries of God, the understanding, the purpose, the plan of God, is what they are given to teach the congregations the things of God about the Father, and about the Son. But with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. So he's telling them, it doesn't make any difference to me what you think of me. Your judgment means nothing. Do we get that? I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet I am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the eternal. Now, you can have your opinions all you want about each other, about me, but you're not my judge. God is. And, oh God, am I thankful for that. <laughs> you know? And <clears throat> I don't say that as an expletive, I say it as a prayer. So he says, it doesn't really matter your opinions of Peter or Apollos or Paul or whichever of the ministers you 
choose or those which you decide to put down, your judgment really doesn't mean a thing because it's God that judges us all. And God would judge him because, see, some of them were putting Paul down and putting Peter or Apollos above Paul. So he says, it doesn't matter to me. You know what? I've got people around here that are judging me for all kinds of things. It doesn't make a bit of difference to me. I could care less. Now, it's uncomfortable when people are all the time trying to accuse you of murder or, or whatever they accuse you of. It's not happy. It's not fun. But it's like a kind of like a fly around your face. You kind of swat it away, and it means nothing in the long run. God is your judge, and God is my judge. And what we judge about each other is inconsequential and means nothing. He says then in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the eternal come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So he says, all of your opinions about the ministry and all your opinions about yourselves just really won't matter because Christ is going to come. He will have judged the hearts. He will have looked everyone over. He will decide whom to retain their sin and whom to forgive it. And he will make the judgment as to whether you rise to meet Christ in the air or not. So all of our opinions and two bucks might buy a cup of coffee in a lot of places still. But our opinions about each other and about the ministry mean squat. Okay? Nothing. Christ is the judge. And then every man will have the praise of God, which is more important than the praise of men. Now, does that mean that we should not consider each other's feelings and thoughts and love each other? But we need to be, no, we should do those things, but we need to be careful not to condemn or make judgments about each other because that truly is God's position. And if we do it, he says we will be judged according to how we judge others. So if we are positive and trying to find the good in each other instead of the evil, then Christ will try to find the good in us instead of the evil. But if we find evil in each other, then Christ says, I will find the evil in you. It's just that simple. So we need to be looking for good so he can find some. Not looking for evil, because he will find it in us. You can find evil in anybody if you look hard enough. Sometimes you don't even have to look very hard, and it's right there before you. But you better be careful. You don't know that person's heart. You don't know everything that's going on. Uh, be very, very careful. Verse 6, he says, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure or a type transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. He says, I'm using myself and Apollos for an example to you. A type or an example. More clearly, an example than a type if you look it up. Some have translated it that way. That you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up 
for one against another. He said, Apollos and I are getting along. I'm the appointed apostle over the Gentiles, and I appointed Apollos to be your local pastor, and he and I are getting along. We're doing okay with that, but you're not. So I'm going to use my relationship with Apollos to show you how you ought to deal with one another because you're putting each other in your own minds above each other. Who is to judge who is the most righteous? Who is? Can you make a judgment about somebody else's righteousness? No, only God knows the heart. We can't judge the heart. And God himself ponders our hearts as to what is really there. And he watches us, and he thinks about us, and he helps us. But we don't know that about each other, do we? We don't have that much insight and discernment, no matter how smart we think we are. For who makes you to differ from another? And what have you that you did not receive? There's a good question. We think we have more knowledge than somebody else. We think we're smarter. We think we're more converted. We think we're uh, better examples. Whatever. What do you have that you didn't receive? I don't have anything I didn't receive. Do you? When did I start receiving truth? I remember sitting in the Methodist church up to about age eight and this picture of a long-haired, sallow-faced, effeminate-looking Jesus, so-called, walking down a path right behind the preacher. That I remember. And I remember when we began to understand truth from another source through the World Tomorrow broadcast that Brother Brooks gave a sermon about how all things can be eaten because the question had come up from my uncle or my parents to him about clean and unclean, which we'd learned about. Well, Brother Brooks didn't know about that, and he didn't understand about that. And you know what? The Methodist Church was not built by Christ. It was built on the foundation of John Wesley, not Christ, Emmanuel, Jesus at all, because it wasn't built on his word. The Catholic Church was not built or laid, the foundation was not laid by Christ himself. It was laid by Simon Magus, whom Peter had told to go to hell with his money. So, there is no foundation other than that which was laid. I don't have anything, getting back to the point, that I didn't receive from one whom God sent. <laughs> Herbert Armstrong at the time, back in the early 50s preaching on the world tomorrow broadcast. That's how we began to learn about the Sabbath and about clean and unclean and all the things that are truth that we never learned in a Protestant church. just wasn't there. So, why do I do what I do today? Why am I here today? Because of what I began to learn in 1952 and 53 that I would have never come up with on my own. And what we have learned in the last, going on 23 years, I would have never had if God had not shown it to me in the Scriptures. Never would have had it. So what have I got that wasn't given me? Absolutely nothing. 
And you wouldn't understand what you do if you hadn't heard the World Tomorrow broadcast, either Herbert or Ted Armstrong or whoever, or someone else, John Wright and Barr or whoever it is in the church, or me. You wouldn't know it if you hadn't heard it from somewhere else. Just wouldn't know it. So what do you have that you haven't received? I mean, what do we have to brag about? Absolutely nothing. Because everything we've got came from another source. It didn't come from us. He says, now you are full, now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. You've decided yourselves that you have everything you need. You're full. Uh, you're rich. What did he tell us here in the end time? You think you're rich and increased with goods, and you don't even know that you're naked and bare and have need of repentance and turning to God with all your heart because you judge among yourselves who is and who is not right. Didn't we do the same thing he's talking about here? Every group that came out basically said, we're Philadelphia. The rest of you are Laodiceans. We're better than you. God has nothing to say bad about us Philadelphians, they say. But the rest of you, you better repent. Now, how can they all be right when there's three or four hundred of them? <laughs> Can't. You've never heard me say we're Philadelphians, have you? Anybody ever here ever heard me say we're Philadelphians? Not once. I've said we're the Laodiceans. I'm a Laodicean. We all have to repent of it, overcome and grow, and start thinking that we're rich and increased with goods, and turn to God from whom all good and perfect gifts come. And the gift of knowledge and understanding that we have came from God. That's, that was its entire source. Through revelation of these words that he wrote long ago that hardly anybody understands. Now, I have hope and prayer that we will become Philadelphians because those are the only ones he says he's going to protect from the tribulation to come. But Sardis is dead, Worldwide Church of God. Laodicea needs to repent. And those who do repent, and those few names left who are alive in Sardis, will form Philadelphia. It draws from both sides, the dead and the dying, if you will and becomes what it ought to be. So, we need to translate this from the little problem going on in Corinth to today, and where we are, and what our attitudes ought to be toward each other, and toward the other groups of people in God's church. They're, they've got the same problem we do. They're Laodiceans. The Philadelphia church has not started yet. It will not start until God does some signs and some wonders and pulls the leadership together and begins to draw a 10% remnant to them. And that's when the Philadelphia church will start. There is no such thing today as an organization. It does not exist. Now, there may be people who haven't bowed their knee to Baal who are working toward the attitude in the relationship with God that will cause him to draw them so that they can become Philadelphia. I'm not saying that there aren't those people out there. But as a 
organization, as a, uh, a body of people, Philadelphia does not yet exist. No matter how many claim to be it, it isn't there. It will be soon, but it isn't there today. So who are we to look down on the other groups? Who are they to look down on us? We shouldn't be looking down on them. We should be praying that they repent and that as many as possible become Philadelphians, including lessons. We need to become that so God can use us to help with this thing. Now, he called, he showed us some things and told us to come here to become that, didn't he? But we haven't achieved it yet. So we have to continue to work. Not just think that because we're here, everything's going to be okay. I think it's pretty abundant by now that just being here doesn't make everything okay. Because there are people here who are bitter enemies of each other. And God said there would be rebels and that he would take care of it. So everything that's happening here is according to Scripture. Everything. And we have to remain faithful in spite of those who are turning away. And we have to become Philadelphians. So you need to be working on you, and I need to be working on me, and if we all work on ourselves, then uh, we can achieve this through Christ. But you can't change anybody else. You just can't do it. You can only change yourself. How many wives and husbands think they can change that person to make them what they want them to be? Nah, you can't. You can't. You might learn to live together. It was a sitcom a few years ago that I used to watch. And it was about this, this, it was a comedian type, but there was this actor who's, he's a, he's a pretty good sized boy, about that big around. And his wife's a cute little thing, but she was mean. And, uh, they'd had some trouble and this and that. And finally, he said one day, he says, well, I'm fat and you're mean. And we've learned to live by, with this. <laughs> they couldn't change each other. And it was either split up and go try to find somebody else or just accept the fact that this is the way we are. We'll deal with it. And, uh, we'll get along okay. Uh, about the only thing I remember from that sitcom, but it, it just struck me when he said that. You really can't change each other. You can chip away here and there and try, but you are basically what you are. And uh, you have to learn to live with yourself, don't you? And it's hard enough to change yourself, much less change somebody else who doesn't maybe want to be changed. And that's really, really hard to do. Okay, where was I here? Uh, he said he had made himself and Apollo an example. And there's nothing we receive that we haven't received from someone else. So that uh, then they said, he says, you think you're full, you think you're rich, uh, you think you've been doing fine without us, the ministry, and I would to God you did reign, that we also might reign with you. You know, I wish you were advanced enough that you really could be in charge. But he's already told them they're so carnal, he can't even give them anything but milk. They can't handle meat. 
For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. And they all did die horrible deaths, with the exception of John, who apparently died a natural death, having been boiled in oil without being hurt, but still in all, he lived and died a natural death. For we are made a spectacle to the world, and to angels, and to men. The leadership of the church here at the end is going to be the same way. They're going to be enemies of the whole world, and made a spectacle by the whole world. Uh, hated by virtually everyone on earth except those in Zion. And maybe a few repenting uh, in the tribulation who see what's going on before they die. So, if you think it was bad in the apostles' day, it's going to get even worse, and then they're going to kill them at the end of it too, three and a half years after they start. So, were they appointed to death? Yep, they were. For we are made a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He's saying this, you know, you're looking at us as fools and you're looking at yourself as being better than we are. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. So he's addressing their attitude is what this is all about. Even to this present hour, speaking of the apostles in the ministry, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. We just deal with it, he says. He says, the world is against us, and even a lot of the church is against us. So, we have to deal with it. It comes with the territory. Being defamed, we entreat. Well, they had defamed him. He was entreating them to change their attitude. We are made as the filth of the world, and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. We're just like human excrement, or excrement, or however you want to say it, dung, uh, and that which is pitched out of the stable to this day. What's the attitude of, of the church overall that still survives? To the ministry today, they misused us, they abused us, they took advantage of us, they did this, they did that, they sinned, they weren't what they ought to be. Now, everybody has their minister stories. I hope we're pretty well over them by now, but boy, I tell you, when this thing first came apart, uh, everybody <clears throat> had their worldwide Church of God preacher stories, and uh, their Herbert Armstrong stories, and so on and so forth. Think it's any different or was any different than it was back then? No, it's the same thing. Same thing. And here, I tried to change the culture somewhat from the graspy greediness of what became worldwide. Send more money, send more money, uh, mortgage your house, fill up your credit cards back in the late 60s, and give it all for the final push and this and that. And then all of those offerings at the feast, you know, I want to hear a, we'll have an offering, then I want to hear a quiet one where you're, I can just hear the whisper of bills, 
And I don't want to hear a noisy offering where you're giving all the change you got. And we all went through all that stuff. And it wasn't right. So here, I tried to change that. Make it as cheap as you could possibly make it for people. Don't mention how much they give. Hardly ever, we don't have offertories. I mentioned once in a while where the offering box is. Uh, that's about it. It has been that way for since 2000. But then people start getting a welfare mentality and thinking you ought to provide everything for them. And a lease isn't good enough on an acre of land for a hundred bucks a month, for crying out loud. Now we need to own it. Because you're liable to kick us out. Why? Well, you quit withholding rent was the only reason I've tried to kick anybody out, other than my brother, who deserved to go, for other reasons. Or brothers, maybe. So, maybe I went too far on the other side of the ditch. Didn't charge enough. We got Nelson and others here who worked months and months and months, years of their labor, doing stuff free for people on this property who now won't even speak to him. What a crying shame. What an ungodly, unchristian thing that is. Oh, yeah. No matter what you do for them, they're not going to like you. No matter what you do for them, it wasn't enough. No matter what you do, you'll be looked down upon. Because after all, you're human. Hadn't changed. Same old thing in worldwide that it was back then. Verse 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He says this, you know, I'm not, I'm not just trying to embarrass you here. I'm trying to warn you that that kind of thinking, that kind of mentality is going to get you in trouble. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, or Emmanuel, I have begotten you through the gospel. So he says, there might be 10,000 out there instructors or self-proclaimed instructors who think they're going to teach you, but you don't have many fathers. Paul says, I'm the one that raised you up. I'm the one that came and taught you what you know. And yet you want to put me down having been a father to you, not just an instructor. What does a father do? It engenders something. A father creates something. Just as the Father has created something in our minds, our Father in heaven, Herbert Armstrong looked upon as his, us as his little children in a way, not as a, a priest or a father in the Catholic Church type of thing, but as the one who taught us and we became his little children in learning. And I don't think that that was an improper thing for him to say in that context because Paul says the same thing, that he was there... Father is a minister in that sense. So he says, why you put me down? I'm the one that engendered you through Christ. 
For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So he says, I brought you knowledge of Christ and his ways. His gospel. And yet you despise me. Or maybe you look up to me and despise Peter. Or you despise me and Peter and look up to Apollos. Come on, he says, what's going on here? Wherefore I beseech you, be you followers of me. He doesn't say here as he does in another place, as I follow Christ. But he's mentioned Christ here just above. He's the one that gave me what I have. So you're to follow what I'm teaching. For this cause have I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the eternal. So he was a father in that sense spiritually to Timothy. Not the father in heaven, but the one who nurtured and brought Timothy along as a young man and an evangelist eventually. So I look upon him as a son, and faithful in the eternal, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, did Paul think he was perfect? No. He said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Only through Christ Emmanuel, he said. So he says, I'm having to be careful that I not be a castaway after I've talked to, preached to others. So he recognized he was still human. He still had problems. He still had difficulties. But he was doing his level best to teach them what Christ had taught him and to get them to be followers of those things. So he says, don't dispute, don't deny, don't put down what I'm teaching you and showing you, but follow me. And that's why I sent Timothy as well, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So he says, I'm teaching these things everywhere I go, and Timothy's going to come there to teach them to you as my son and the one that I've taught. So you're going to get the same stuff. Now, some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Some think, ah, Paul won't come here. We're so far advanced and we're beyond Paul. And uh, he's not going to come here. He'd be afraid of us. We're so uh, intelligent and so uh, spiritual and so on. I've got people out here, right here on this property, that say, hey, I could get up on a stage in front of people and I could get the Scriptures out and I could make you look like a fool and challenged me to do so. Ridiculous. He knows nothing. He's a follower of Satan the devil, and has followed Protestant teaching, and gone back to all kinds of garbage, and he doesn't know anything about the Bible anymore. But he thinks he does. He's puffed up in his own mind, thinking he's going to be the one that saves his place. He's told people that. That I'm going down... And he's dedicated his life by email to me that he's going to take me down and now he's stated to the others that he's going to replace me. I, that's scary talk. But that's what these people were doing to Paul and to Peter and some of them to Apollos. Be careful. Some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. You know what? Maybe he's right. 
Maybe he won't bring me down, but you know what? I could not finish this sermon very easily. If God wants to get rid of me, he can do it in an instant, a split second. I can be gone. I'm glad he's my judge, not some of these people around here. Truly am. And he might take me out. That's his business. And then we can have a few people who can really crow about how well God took Daryl out. He got rid of him, thank God. And now I'll be in charge. Be careful. Just be careful. If God does that, then we can reassess and figure it all out. But if God doesn't do that, then you're going to have to deal with me. Such as I am. Flawed as I am. But I am teaching you the truth. As Paul said he was doing. So if you think I won't come to you, I will. But I will come to you shortly if the eternal will, and the will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. You can get puffed up with human vanity and ego very easily, can't you? About how smart or how converted or how whatever you are. But the power of the Spirit is what gives overcoming and growing and humility and meekness. That's what you learn self-control by, is by the power of God. And he, with God's Spirit, could come and use that power. He didn't have to just be meek and mumbly and humbly all the time. He could come with power. And he said, don't push me or I will. What will you? He says, up to you. Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? The power of God can be demonstrated by a rod of chastisement, or it can be demonstrated also by humility and meekness and love. It can be either way. God has the power to do both. You know, God clearly has the power to forgive, to forget our sins, to immortalize us, and let us live forever and ever and ever in His love and mercy and kindness and so on. He also has the power to cast us into the lake of fire. He can do either one. And he's going to do both. He's going to do both. Now, most ultimately, I, I firmly believe, based on Scripture, will be in the kingdom of God, most human beings who have lived. But some will not. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we need to be very, very careful that he comes not in the power of fire, but in the power of love and meekness and gentleness to usher us into his kingdom, us as the bride of Christ and others into the kingdom later on when their time comes. Let's go to chapter 5 then. Now he's getting down to a specific problem other than attitudes and gossip and all kinds of stuff that were going on in the church. Now he gets down to a specific issue. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. The one should have his father's wife. Now, this has been speculated on a lot, that uh, maybe uh, this man's father had either his wife died and he had remarried, and this was his mother-in-law or his stepmother that he was sleeping with, uh, that's unclear. Paul does not specify. 
but it was the type of a perversion that even the Gentiles don't generally go to. And it could have been his own mother. doesn't say it's not. That's happened. It's happening in our nation, the United States of America today. Mothers and their sons are having sex. So, uh, who knows exactly what the relationship was, but it was certainly unnatural and odd and weird and strange and heavily sinful. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, it's, it's funny that they would be putting down either Peter or Paul or Apollos, who were ministers of God, who were trying to serve them and help them. And some of them, they dissed completely and might have accepted one of the three, depending on who it was. But here was somebody who was having sex with either his mother or his stepmother or some such thing, and that didn't bother them in the least. They were puffed up. Hey, in Corinth, everything goes, you know. You can do anything you want in Corinth. So they didn't look down on this guy. Maybe some of them did, but the church as a whole certainly did not. For I truly, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. It apparently was commonly enough reported that he believed that it was occurring. And he had determined already. Now, he's already told them up here not to judge and condemn each other. But there are many, many scriptures I could go to that show that the ministry sometimes has to make judgments uh, on situations and tell people what they need to do or need not to do. That is not eternal judgment or condemnation. That is simply, this is happening, it needs to stop. And the ministry was given the power to do that, as Paul will clearly show here. He says, I can come quietly or I can come with a rod. It's up to you. And then he explains what the problem is, and they will respond one way or another. They'll either listen to him, or they will deny it, and he will come with a big stick. So he says, I'm going to make a, uh, a determination here, or a judgment about what must be done. So he says, in the name of our Lord Emmanuel, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, you're meeting, and I want my power and that of Christ there, not of your puffed up opinion of yourselves and of this guy who was clearly openly sinning. It wasn't something he was even trying to hide. It was something apparently that's quite open. To, to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day that Christ returns. So he said, this has to stop. And this man needs to be turned over to, to, to Satan since he is not repenting, he is not overcoming it, he is openly doing it, which is a terrible example for the rest of the church. So he says, this just simply has to stop. He'll either stop it or he will be turned over to Satan. Now, do you want to be turned over to Satan? <laughs> That's not a good thing. But for this man, Paul said, it would be a good thing 
if he's turned over to Satan, if that's his attitude. Because Satan will destroy him if he can. And maybe then he will repent and be saved out of it before it's all over. You know, God allows us to be put in a lot of different circumstances. And sometimes he allows Satan to have free reign with us. Now, Job wasn't anywhere near what this man was. Job was a righteous man, and yet God sicked Satan on him completely and entirely with the exception of killing him. He could do anything to Job he wanted to as long as he didn't kill him. That's all Paul is saying. If this man will not repent, he needs to be turned over to Satan. Let him work him over, and maybe he will repent. Now, if the man had contacted Paul and said, Paul, you know, I realize this isn't, this isn't according to God's will. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I apologize for it. I pray for forgiveness from God. Uh, this was a terrible sin, sleeping with my mother or my mother-in-law or my stepmother or whoever it was, and I'll never do it again. You know what Paul would have said? Bless you, my son. What does God say when we repent? Bless you, my son. But if we won't repent, then he says, okay, I'll chasten you, or I'll turn Satan loose on you. See how that goes. And hopefully you'll repent that the man, spirit and man that is in you might be saved in the day of the Lord Emmanuel. So he says, your glorying is not good. They were just sort of ignoring or patting this guy on the back or whatever for something that was a heinous sin. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he says, if you're, if you're letting this guy do what he's doing, don't you think it's going to spread? Don't you think it'll get more and more in the church? It'll leaven the whole lump? Somebody told me that I think it was in the Houston church, that they developed a key club where they'd get together for a social, and at the end of the night, everybody put their house key in a hat. And whosever's key you draw out is who you go home with that night. That's in Houston Church of the Church of God. Years ago. I heard of such things in the Pacific Northwest about these singles and all they were doing was coming there not to find a mate that they could respect and love, but to find somebody to lay down on for the weekend. It got that bad. And it got that way in Ambassador College where the girls were allowed in the boys' dorms and fornication was rampant. And God turned it all over to Satan the devil for the destruction of the flesh and hoped some would repent. And I hope we all are. The glory isn't good. A little leaven leavens the whole thing. Is there any question why God blew it all apart and told us to go repent? Turn to Him with all our heart? 
Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The, the way that he uses this might indicate that Paul was writing this around Passover time, because that was probably very much on their minds and on his mind, and it was certainly a great example to use uh, with this man who was doing what he was doing. Be a new lump for Christ to sacrifice for us. Don't be like you have been, but be different. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And they needed some sincerity in this situation, and they needed some truth. I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. I had apparently written another letter at another time that isn't... uh, canonized his scriptures, but it had gone to them. He did keep 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as scripture, but apparently not the one before. So I told you not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. He says, you're not going, if you're out there working with the world and you're doing business with the world, uh, you can't get away from it entirely because that's the way they live. That's what they do. So, you're going to have to put up with it to some degree, not altogether with the fornicators of this world. You don't get completely away from them because you can't. Or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. (laughs) I mean, you can't do business. You can't, I mean, the clerk at Costco or Walmart may be doing this stuff, and you can't get completely away from it without leaving the earth. But then he says, let's address something else. But now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother, a member of the church of God, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. Got some of those around here too. With such an one, no, not to eat. You don't have social concourse with them. You don't have them over to dinner or or you go to their place to eat. You stay away from them because that's what they are. So he names a pretty good variety of sins here. And everybody is to one degree or another one or all of these things. Whether physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, or whatever, uh, we could all be included here with some fault or another, be it physical or spiritual. But he's talking about somebody who is habitually living as a fornicator, or you can tell by the way they live and act that all they're they're about is money or whatever they covet, or an idolater, worship themselves or something else, or someone who's always railing at others about how bad they are, an arguer, a fighter, someone who creates dissension within the group, or a drunkard, habitually a drunkard, or an extortioner trying to take what is not his. Uh, Could people show by their character that that's their way of life? And that's the way this guy up here was. It wasn't that he made a mistake once. 
it was that he was living in open fornication with someone he was not married to, and even beyond that, something that was perverted. And that was acceptable to them. He says, no, you got to get away from that guy. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? We can't go around condemning the world. Do not you judge them that are within. Now, we don't condemn. We don't make eternal judgments. We don't uh, make any kind of a judgment. Now, we can see the sin. And Paul said, it's clearly, it's open. Everybody knows it. you got to do something about this. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, this judgment he made of turning this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might learn from, um, they accepted. So he didn't have to come hit them with a mallet. Now, they assume that this person, once his, once Paul made this judgment, then they all decided to say, that man is bad. And they committed another mistake, another sin, because the man didn't stay the way he was. The man repented and changed and didn't do that with his whoever it was anymore. And then Paul said, well, now you won't forgive him. Were they yet carnal? They wouldn't condemn what he was doing. And when Paul condemned it and says, we're turning him over to Satan, don't eat with him. Then when the man repented, they says, well, you've, it's already been said, you're a sinner. We'll have nothing more to do with you. So when he repented, they wouldn't forgive him. We see that in Second Corinthians. They wouldn't forgive him. Then Paul had to start all over and say, look, he was sinning and you accepted it. I put him out so that he might repent. And indeed he did. He quit it. And now you won't forgive him and accept him back. Yes, they were yet carnal. Yes, they couldn't stand meat. Because once somebody was branded a sinner, he was forevermore a sinner. He was pigeonholed then. This is this guy that used to sleep with his mother and what? So they wouldn't forget. And Paul condemned them just as strongly for that as for accepting the sin in the first place. It seems like no matter what, our human nature is there and it comes out. So we have to be careful to follow all Scripture, which is given by inspiration of God and profitable. So, okay, I shouldn't have maybe gone ahead with the story. Uh, here, the man was being told to repent, and they were told to stay away until he did. And then we'll, uh, we'll see the sequence more clearly later on and how God expects us to react depending on what people do.